So this week, we continue our series on the book of Philippians, on Philippians. As we talked about last week, uh, we're going to be in this book for a while, and our series title, as you can see on the new screens now, our series title is Philippians, Joy and Unity in the Gospel of Christ. And just once again, as your pastor, I do ask you, if you've been here for a while, or if you were here last week even, that you'd be praying along with us for these things as we go through this book, verse by verse. That as we hear from God and his word in Philippians, we become more of a people of joy, real joy. That we grow in our unity that we already have, but we grow in it more. And that also that we know and love more and more the gospel of Jesus. Prayer does a lot. We're going to even see that from the text that we just read this morning. So again, please join me in praying for these things. But with that said, this morning we're going to be, as you just heard, in Philippians 1 verses 7 through 11. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. And there we saw the Apostle Paul address two main topics, if you remember, two main topics. He told us who we are, and he told us what we're promised. And that was the first half of the intro to this letter, but now that brings us to finish the intro to this letter, verses 1 through 11, and now we're going to cover verses 7 through 11. And here we're going to see Paul address two more topics. And just like last week, we set them up with questions, we're going to do the same this morning, and that will be our outline of our time. And so our two main questions this morning, our first question will be, okay, so last week we saw who we are and what we're promised, but now, how should we feel about one another? How should we feel about one another? And for this, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, and that will then lead us to our second question of the morning, which will simply be, and how should we pray for one another? How should we pray for one another? So that's our simple outline of this morning, feeling and praying. How should we feel towards one another in this church, and how should we pray for one another? And as always, we're going to see how this, of course, applied to Paul and the Philippians, but then we'll see how much it really does apply to us here at ECC. So that said, let's now dig back into God's word together, looking again at verses 7 and 8. Looking again in your Bible in verses 7 and 8. And remember, the question we're asking to begin is, okay, this is who we are and what we're promised, but now how should we feel about one another? And for this, we're going to see, you're going to see Paul give himself as an example, as he often does. So let's begin just with verse 7. So look down at the Bible again. This is just verse 7. The Bible says this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So you probably notice the feeling words right away in that verse. There's a lot of them. To begin, Paul starts there in verse 7 by saying that it's right and fitting for him to feel this way about them. So there it is. He feels for them. And that word that you see in your Bible there, feel, is actually a pretty important word in this letter to the Philippians. In fact, it's a, it's a word that only appears 26 times in the whole New Testament, which is a lot of writings, but 10 of those times are in this short four-page letter to the Philippians. And so this idea of feeling for one another is a really important idea. And this can actually be translated in two different ways, and I think it's helpful for us to consider this. Not just one way, two ways. And the two words that it can be translated are think or feel. Think or feel. And the reason for that is because both are implied in this word. And so here's why this is helpful for us, just as we begin verse 7. So right away, we're seeing that Paul feels a certain way about these people, but it's it's a specific type of feeling. 
It's a thinking feeling. It's a feeling that arises because he thinks a certain way about them. He thinks about these people and it does something in his heart. It makes him feel. And our feeling for one another should be similar. But that's just the beginning of verse 7. Paul thinks and therefore feels about them. But now notice as the verse goes on, he's going to give two reasons why he thinks feels about them. Two reasons, and you can see it for yourself in the verse. First, as he goes on, he thinks and feels this way about them because, as verse 7 says, because I hold you in my heart. And so now we're seeing why his feelings are working like this. And this is a beautiful phrase, right? I hold you in my heart. And it's, uh, it's how I hope we become more and more towards each other here at ECC. And this phrase is an idiom, a saying that makes sense to us in English just like it made sense to them 2,000 years ago. Holding someone in your heart, it's clearly a very affectionate term. And it's something that we often today, as you might know, reserve mainly just for romantic relationships. But Paul here is, Paul here is using it for the whole church. Not that he has a romantic relationship with them or anything, that's not the point. But he says he holds them in his heart and he's not afraid to say it. I mean, he's blunt. He really loves them. They're in his heart. He knows it. He feels it. They mean a lot to him. The first reason he thinks and feels about them, they're close to him in his very heart. But now look at the second reason. We're still in verse 7. Because I hold you in my heart, second reason, for you are all partakers with me of grace. So now's the second reason he feels for them, because he looks at them and he says, and you are partakers with me of grace. And if you heard last week, this obviously brings us back to verse 5, where Paul used that similar word, it's the same, almost the same exact word, where he talks about that we are partners in the gospel. That famous word we love, that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership. But here what's interesting is that here in verse 7, Paul actually takes that word and makes it even a little more intense. Because literally, just so you know, in the actual original language here, what Paul does is he takes the word partnership and he adds the word with to the beginning of it. And so literally, and this is helpful for us, for us, it reads, for you are all my with partners in grace. With partners. One word, and this must mean, if you're tracking that, he thinks and feels for them a certain way because he really believes that they're partners with him. This emphasis on with, by his side, right there with him, alongside him. And so he feels this way towards them because he really believes they're with him. We'll apply this in a second, but that finally brings us to the last things Paul says in verse 7. So the partners with him, and you notice specifically they're partners with him of grace. So what unites them is that they recognize that God is gracious towards them and treats them better than they deserve. But notice now where and when they've been partners with him in verse 7. This is how our verse ends. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so now that's where this partnership has really shown itself in the troubling and the difficult times and that'll be true for us too here at ECC in our own lives and in this church. Because it's one thing to say that you're with somebody, that you're gospel partners, but it really shines forth in the midst of trouble and difficulty. And so Paul is saying here that he knows that the Philippians have really been with him, his partners, because they've been with him in the midst of his imprisonment, 
when he had to defend and confirm the gospel. And to be clear, just so you know, it's not that the Philippians have been physically with him. Because if you know, he's all the way in Rome in prison while they're over at Philippi. But still, they have been with him. Partners alongside him in the gospel in grace through everything that he has gone through. And so now with just verse 7 done, as we just went slowly through that, I hope you can feel this man's love and affection for this church. He thinks and he feels for them. Why? Because they're so close to him in his heart. Because they're partners with him. Partners in grace. And especially because they've been partners with him through all the difficulty. And this is Paul's example. But as we're answering our question, how should we feel about one another? I pray this is how we become more and more here at this church toward one another here at ECC. Because how great would it be if we thought about one another in such a way that it really did something in our hearts, that we felt towards one another, if we really understood that we are unique partners. This is the second week in a row where that idea has come forth, that we are partners, that we have this partnership in the gospel, and especially if we felt that and knew that through the times of difficulty. It'd be special if we were a church that really felt like that. But we will apply that more in a minute. But before we do so, that now leads us to verse 8. Verse 8, which is honestly my favorite verse in our whole section this morning. It's a short verse, but it's really fascinating to see what Paul's about to say. So that's his love and affection for them in verse 7. But now he's going to tell us about this affection in verse 8. So let's read that now. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of of Christ Jesus. So, so Paul invites God to witness what he's about to write, and he often does that. The point is, what I'm about to write to you is really true. God is my witness. What I'm about to write to you is really true. So what is it that he wants them to know is definitely true? That he, quote, yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that yearning is similar to the idea of feeling that we saw all in verse 7. He loves them. What's striking about this verse, and I hope you see it for yourself, and what makes it my favorite verse in our whole section here, is what he yearns for them with. You notice it. You see it for yourself in verse 8. It's so important. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And here's a good example, almost as a side note. Here's a good example, brothers and sisters, of why we go slowly verse by verse through the Bible. Because let's, let's be honest, if, if we were just reading this, if this was just in your, maybe your Bible reading or we were going all throughout Philippians 1 and one message, if we were doing that, we'd probably just skim over what we just read. Right? It's a little confusing. We kind of maybe understand what it means, but we'd probably just skim over it. But these, as you're about to see, are some really important words. And not only important, but they're really profound as well. So to begin, that word affection there in itself is even an important word. Affection. And it's honestly a strange word because literally it's just the Greek word for guts or bowels. As strange as that sounds. It's just that word. And it comes from an idea that we still have today that when you really feel something, right, you often feel it in your gut, quite literally, right? You feel it right there. And so the ancients back in the day took that word and used it to describe something that really made them feel something, a deep feeling and affection. 
And so Paul is saying right away that he longs for them with this deep, gutted affection. This compassion could even be a good word because compassion means that you're coming alongside somebody to feel with them. So that's the beginning. He has this affection. But now notice how Paul explains what this affection actually is. And here's what makes this verse so profound and important. Paul says his affection is the affection of Christ Jesus. You see that? It's the affection of Christ Jesus. So think about what the Bible's saying here. So, so Paul's saying, if you're tracking with us, Paul's saying that he has these strong emotions and feelings and affections for the Philippians. And we saw that in verse 7 and even in verse 8 so far. But now ask yourself, whose affection is this ultimately according to Paul here? Or, or where does this affection come from according to Paul here? Well, apparently it's Jesus' affection. It comes from Jesus. It's the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is startling because if you're tracking, this means that Paul is ending this verse, these verses about talking about his feelings for the Philippians by showing us what these feelings actually are. And that's that they're really Jesus' affections, not just his own. All this affection he feels for the Philippians is, you see it, in yourself for the, you see it for yourself in the Bible, is the affection of Christ Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And not only that, but Paul is even saying that his love and affection and compassion is Jesus' love and affection and compassion. So I hope you're seeing how amazing that is. It means that Paul's feelings apparently aren't ultimately Paul's feelings. That's what he says. Instead, they're apparently Jesus' feelings. Jesus' own compassion manifesting itself in Paul's compassion. And this is especially significant because as you probably know, compassion was one of the strongest emotions that Jesus felt while he walked on this earth. You might know that. The gospel writers, when they're writing about our Lord when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, they often said that he was full of compassion. He loved people really, really well, more than anybody in the history of the world. Of course he did. We all agree with that. But then what's amazing then here is what Paul is saying. He's saying that and Jesus is still being compassionate towards his people. And how? In and through Paul's compassion. Because Paul's affection is Jesus' own affection. It is the affection of Christ Jesus. Or, or to say it most clearly, Jesus' love and affection is being poured out on the Philippians through the Apostle Paul's love and affection. And so now with verses 7 and 8 fully looked at, now we can finally apply this to ourselves here at ECC. And to apply it, I hope you've been tracking, you just look at verses 7 and 8, and I think we'd all agree that it would be such a beautiful thing if we were more like that here at this church toward one another. Those sort of feelings. Because remember, our first question is, okay, how should we feel about one another? And we've seen our answer here. As who we are and what we're promised, what things we looked at last week, now our aim should be to be a people who really feel for one another. Really have these emotions for one another. I mean, deep in our guts, deep in our bones, like Paul writes about here. 
Because what would it look like if our church really thought and felt for one another, even a little bit more like Paul says here in these verses? And what would it be if we unashamedly could look at one another and say, I really do hold you in my heart? What would it be like if we looked at each other, not just as people who happen to gather together on Sunday mornings, but as partners in the gospel, as partners of grace? What would it be if we had just even a little bit more of Jesus' affection in us for one another? Well, that would unite us more than anything else. It could make this place such a place of love and joy. Of course, it would glorify God, and it would make a statement to the world, right? Just as Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you, my disciples, if you love one another. And so that's simply what we need to strive for as we apply this part of Scripture. The answer to our question, how should we feel for one another, is that we really should be a people of deep love for one another. And and I know, let's be honest, I know we hear that all the time as Christians. We know we're supposed to be a people of love, but I, I pray that in these verses now you've seen an example of what type, of what that type of love will look like. Because if love is just a vague concept to us, it might never materialize. We can say we want to be a people of love, but we won't strive for it. But here in verses 7 and 8, we can put some meat on the bones of what it would look like if we started to really love and love and love one another. It would be us thinking about each other in a way that led us to feel It would be us holding each other in our heart. It would be us believing that we're really partners of grace, this sort of deep-rooted gut affection. So that's what we're to strive for more here at ECC. But that brings us to the last thing we'll apply from these verses before we move on. And that's by asking, but how can we love more like that? But how? Because sure, we might all agree, and maybe you're here sitting here this morning, and we, of course we'd all agree we want to be a people of love. Maybe you're sitting here and you're listening, and you're saying, yeah, that'd be great for me to be more of a loving, heartfelt person, but how? And that's where verse 8 at the end there is so helpful. Because let's be honest, we may want to become more loving and feeling in our hearts, but we can't just turn on our affections and our love. Have you ever noticed that? That's what makes conversations about love and feelings so difficult. Because while we can go and do certain will-powered actions, for example, if I were to say to any one of you in this room, go and turn off a light switch in the back, while you could do that, while we can do those things, what we can't do is just turn on and change our feelings and affections. We can't make ourselves feel a certain way. I can't say to you, feel deep affection for one another, and then you just go and do it. You can't turn on the light switch of your heart if you want to think of it that way. We can try, but in the end, it's out of our control. And so then how do we do this? Well, here's the good news, and it's what we saw in verse 8. We may not be able to turn on our affections and our love for one another, But God can. Jesus can give us more of his affections for one another. 
And that's why I think the Apostle Paul makes it so clear that his love and affection is really the affection of Christ Jesus. It's Jesus' love in him because he knows he can't do this. He can't take any credit for the love that he feels for this church. Instead, Paul believes that Jesus is not only really alive, he is, but Jesus is also the one sparking his own love in his heart for these Philippians. And Jesus can do that for us as well. And that's why our final application from these verses in 7 and 8 has to be us praying for Jesus to fill us with more love for one another. Because we can't produce that sort of love on our own. We might be able to fake it. But we can't really produce that sort of love in our hearts. So we must pray. Meaning we must ask Jesus himself to fill us with more of his own love for one another. Because although we can't do this, Jesus is really alive, he's real, and he's really full of love. And he's able to pour out his affection on us toward one another. Which now leads us to a second part of our passage. So that was our first question. How should we feel about one another? And I hope you've seen that we should have this unique, deep love and affection, an affection even given to us by Jesus himself. And again, how special it would be if we had that more and more here at this church. But that now leads us to our second question, and that's, and how should we pray for one another? How should we pray for one another? And we go here because this is where Paul goes in verses 9 through 11. He turns from his statements on, about feelings to praying for the church. And for these verses, we're going to look just briefly at what Paul prays for. But for the sake of our time, actually, this morning, we're going to look more at how Paul decides to pray for them. And you'll see the distinction. And the reason for this is twofold. First, if you were here even, I think it was three weeks ago, we already covered these same verses in our message about the glory of God. Because, you see at verse 11, it ends with, to the glory and praise of God. So we recently covered what Paul prays for. But then second, although I do think what the content of the prayer is matters greatly, and I encourage you to study it on your own, we can learn a lot by looking just more broadly at how Paul prays. So that's what we're going to do. Looking at how Paul prays. But let's begin by just reading these verses again. This is verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. So we will look at the prayer broadly, asking how he prays, but just real briefly, let's see what he prays for. So in verse 9, he prays for a lot of love. You see that? And not just sentimental, wishy-washy love, but love with knowledge. One commentator, as I read this week, hopefully wrote on this, love without knowledge is squishy and spineless sentimentalism, and knowledge without love is meaningless. I think that's true. We need both. So that's verse 9, love and knowledge. Then in verse 10, Paul gives the reason for this, so that they can live more sinless and pure lives. And then in verse 11, you see the prayer to fill, be filled with more fruit and the reason also that God may be glorified. So that's a really quick summary of what Paul prays for. Love, knowledge, more pure lives, all to the glory of God. But as I said a second ago, I want us this morning to focus mainly how he prays. Looking at the prayer, honestly, a lot more broadly, just 
30,000 feet up because I think it will be helpful for us. And it'll help us answer our question of how we should pray for one another. And for this, just look broadly at what Paul prays for here because it might be kind of surprising to us. And here's what I mean. Ask yourself this. What do you pray for when you usually pray for others and yourself? Because if most of us were honest, I think we'd admit that we pray a little different than what we just read there in verses 9 through 11. Not, Not that we pray wrong or anything. That's not the point. But when we pray... I think from my experience, from my own life, from hearing people pray, I think we usually pray for really specific things. Specific things. That's mainly what fills our prayers. We pray for a specific situation or a specific person or something specific coming up or someone specifically going through an illness or someone specific to know, come to know Jesus. And although there's a, clearly a place for that in the Bible and we still should keep praying like that, Did you notice how general Paul's prayer is here? How general it is? You could even use the word vague at times, but general might be a bit better because vague has such a negative connotation for us. But notice how general it is. And and this is interesting because remember, as we said last week in our intro to this series, Paul knew these Philippians really, really well. He's the one who established this church. In fact, later on in our letter, he's going to mention multiple people by name. So he knows specifics about these people. And not only that, he knows specifics about the situation and the city they're in. He'd been to Philippi. He established the church. He knows things he could pray for for them that would help them in their specific situation. And yet with all those specifics, how does Paul pray? In this general, even vague way. For, for these general big things like more love and more knowledge, that you may live more holy lives, that you may have more fruit, that God may be glorified. And you can see what I mean by calling these general requests. The requests that don't have specific people or specific situations mentioned. Instead, they're just big prayers to God for these people to be more generally loving more generally blameless and holy and God-glorifying. That's how Paul prays here. And honestly, it's how most of the prayers in the Bible work. They're prayers for these big, general things. And here's where I think this is helpful for us. In one sense, we can think of how we should pray and what we should pray for as a spectrum. A spectrum. And and whenever we make requests to God, we can pray anywhere on the spectrum. The Bible allows us to pray anywhere on the spectrum. We can even call it the the specific versus general prayer spectrum. Specific and general prayer spectrum. And the spectrum is pretty simple. On the one end of the spectrum, we have really specific prayers. And these we're more used to praying. These would be prayers for specific people, specific situations, specific places, and, and more. And these are excellent prayers. And the Bible gives us reason to pray like that. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have general prayers. So specific and general. And that's what we see here. And that's what I think we'd all agree we're probably less familiar with. And less prone to praying. Even though, honestly, there are more of these in the Bible. And what these prayers are like are what we see here. Prayers for big things that seem just general, for big gospel realities like more evangelism, more purity, more peace, more glory to God, more uh, world missions throughout the globe, things like that. 
And the reason I'm focusing on this is because I think we should strive to pray a lot more like this. Because that's what we see from the Apostle Paul here. Because we can tend to think that specific prayers are better because we're giving a specific request to God and then we can see a specific answer. And although there's a place for that in the Bible, the Bible actually has more of these general prayers. So why might that be? Because when we pray generally, God still hears and God will still answer specifically even if we don't see how. And that's why I think Paul prays like this. Yes, he could have gotten specific and listed specific things in the church or he could have listed specific ways that he thought the Philippians could glorify God in Philippi. And I'm sure when he talked to them, they talked about that sort of stuff. But when he prayed for the Philippians and for the other churches we see in the New Testament, he mainly prayed for these big general things, things like more love, more holiness, more glory to God, and then he entrusted to God the specific answers. So that's the point for us in answering our question, how should we pray for one another? The Bible shows us here that we should pray more like this. Pray for general things and trust God with his specific answers. Now again, we should pray for specifics. When someone has a health issue or something's going on, please pray. God hears those prayers and they really matter. But also, just like it would be so unique for us to have these deep feelings for one another, what would it also look like if we became a church who started praying these deep, big, general prayers for one another and for this entire church? And what if all of us consistently prayed that God would make this church just more of a church of love and joy and unity and peace? general things, but God will answer that in a specific way. Or what if we just prayed, God, give us more strength, more patience, more wisdom. How might God answer such general prayers in his own specific way? And so how should we pray for one another? Well, in summary, we should learn to pray more generally like this. For our church, for one another, for even for yourself. And when we do so, we can recognize, yes, these requests are general, even vague, but, just like the Apostle Paul, we can trust that God will answer them in his own specific way. And so that's our text in Philippians 1, 7 through 11. In answer to our first question, how should we feel for one another? We saw Paul's love and affection, an affection that was Jesus' own affection in him. And then in the answer of how should we pray for one another, we saw that we should pray with these big, general, God-trusting prayers. Prayers for things like more love and joy and holiness, all to the glory of God. But now as we close, I want to do one more thing with our text, because I think it really helps us see what's going on in our passage. And it's pointing out how these two questions now that we've covered connect to one another. How they connect. Because you might have been hearing these two topics this morning, feeling for one another and, and praying for one another, and just been thinking that they're two random topics that we're talking about because Paul randomly talks about them. But as we close, I want to show you that that's not the case. Instead, I want to show you some transitions in our paragraph that really help us see how these connect. So look down at your Bibles again. Look down at your Bibles as we come to a close. So to begin, just to see these transitions, look how verse 6 transitions to verse 7. So verse 6 was last week. Was that promise? God will bring it to completion. And then verse 7 
Paul just begins almost with a new thought. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. And so I show that to you because that's a, that's a transition to almost a new thought, a new paragraph. But now, notice that the transition from verse 8 to verse 9 doesn't work like that. Here's what I mean. Notice how verse 8 ends. He has the affection of Christ Jesus. And then notice how verse 9 starts. And it is my prayer. So verse 8. I feel for you like this. I really do. I love you. Verse 9. And it is my prayer. And that's there in the original Greek. That and. Now I, I understand. Let's be clear. That and is not the strongest connection word. And yet. I think it's there for a reason. Because think about our passage then. In verses 7 and 8, he's saying, I feel for you so much. This is how I love you. I have this deep, hold you in my heart, affection, which then leads in verses 9 through 11 for him to pray for them. He transitions smoothly from feeling to praying. Why? Because it's the affection that then leads him to pray. I feel for you all. I love you. And I pray for you. And here's then how these two ideas connect. Feeling leads to praying. And I hope this is how they start to connect for here at, us here at this church as well. Because as God grants us to have deeper affection and love for one another, the more we will pray for one another. And in that way, it's almost an endless loop of love and prayer that God wants his people to get into and I hope we get into here at ECC. We pray to have more love for one another and then God answers that prayer and we love one another more and that leads us to praying for one another more. And then because we pray for one another more, more and more we love one another more and the cycle goes on and on and on. Love and prayer, love and prayer. And so as we close, I hope we become more like that here at this church. More of a people of deep affection who love one another with the special Jesus-given affection as we saw from Paul. And then in connection with that, that we become a people who continually pray for one another and pray in these big, general, God-trusting ways and trusting God with the specifics. But one last question as we close and finish our intro of Philippians 1, 1 through 11. And it's always good to ask us, and that question is, but why? But why? Why do we want to be more like this? And as we know, there's many good reasons for this, but I bring this question up just as we close now, because with all that's been said, it would be a shame if we forgot how our passage ends here in verse 11, because this is the ultimate answer to why we want to be like this. And we can even sum up our last two weeks and our four points from this intro like this. I mean, now as who we are and what we're promised, why do we want to feel this way about one another? And why do we want to pray like this for one another? The answer is at the end of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. That's why. That's what's at stake in all of this. Because as we love one another more deeply, brothers and sisters, as we pray for one another more consistently, and then as we live lives more like Jesus, God will be magnified, made much of, and glorified more and more in this church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.